You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. What a great privilege it is uh, to uh, look out on you, uh, my colleagues in ministry, fellow foot soldiers, pastors, church leaders, the people who know what it's really all about, and uh, to be invited to be part of this occasion with you is something that I don't take for granted. It was a privilege to come uh, to Philadelphia some months ago now, and uh, you can always get invited somewhere once. Um, but even when you get invited a second time, you never know whether it was because they liked what you did or whether they just feel a sense of compassion for you. And uh, so they said, well, we'll give, we'll give him another try, see if he can get it right the second time. But um, I, um, whatever, whatever the basis of the invitation was, I, I accept it humbly, and I count it a privilege to address you now. We're going to read from Romans and from chapter 1 and uh, from verse 8 uh, through to verse 17. Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. It's one of the great benefits of an occasion like this, isn't it? I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel... A righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Amen. I want to give you a quote from um, John Newton, and then I'm going to pray briefly, and then we'll look uh, together at this. This was Newton in the 18th century uh, addressing his congregation uh, before he preached to them. And he he said to them, I count it my honor and happiness that I preach to a free people who have the Bible in their hands. To your Bibles I appeal. I entreat, I charge you to receive nothing upon my word any farther than I can prove it from the Word of God, and bring every preacher and every sermon that you hear to the same standard." Gracious Father, we thank you for the privilege of being in this place, in this moment. We believe that you have gathered us together over these days for the express purpose that we might meet with you and hear from you. And we pray now that once again, as we turn to the Bible, that the Spirit of God will be our teacher, that you will conduct that divine dialogue whereby the God, the Holy Spirit, speaks into our lives through a mere human instrument by the word of truth itself, accomplishing purposes that you've had from all of eternity. What an awesome thought. We're humbled before you. We pray expectantly. We come like children to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to take as our text uh, for this uh, study this morning, verses 16 and 17. Uh, They're there in front of you. I won't reread them. Uh, They're familiar verses. I make no apology for the familiarity of these things. 
uh, for myself when it comes to the matter of the gospel, which is really the subject under our consideration in these verses, uh, I find that uh, the words of the old hymn are apropos. I, I love to tell the story, for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Any time that we find ourselves saying, oh, but is this the gospel? I know all about the gospel. Then we're actually in danger uh, because, as the late Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, when the gospel is actually preached, there is a sense in which we ought to feel as if we, we would like to trust in Christ and, and be converted all over again. Romans is as helpful a book in the entire Bible in helping us understand the gospel. And throughout history, uh, those who have loved the gospel have been lovers of the book of Romans. Luther himself regarded it as a matter of such vital importance that he urged the pastors in his day to make sure that they were beating uh, the story of Romans consistently, continually, into the hearts and heads of the congregation. He actually said that it was important for the congregations not simply to know the book of Romans, but to know the book of Romans off by heart, that they should be able to recite it word for word. And he said that the reason that the congregation should be able to do that is because they would discover it to be bread for their souls. And of course, the book of Romans had become bread for the soul of uh, Luther himself. Uh, Luther uh, took up holy orders in an Augustinian monastery when he was just around 21. Uh, in 1511, uh, in spiritual language, he had gone to Rome, hoping to find a way to unburden his soul. Instead, the month that he spent in Rome proved to be a time of great torture for him. It was four, four weeks, he said, of duty, dutiful religious service, which only served to deepen his sense of disillusionment. As a devout monk, he was working from the axiom that a good God is bound to accept good men if they're just trying their best. But that actually only served to heighten his anguish. And he was asking himself this fundamental question. How could a man ever know that he had done enough to merit grace? He became the professor of Bible at Wittenberg University. In the course of his uh, work there as a professor, he engaged in two long series of expositions, one on the, on the Psalms and the other on Romans. And it was while he himself was teaching through Romans that he finally grasped the fact that the righteousness which he longed for, this righteousness of God, which is mentioned here in verse 17, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, that this righteousness is that righteousness, which Luther went on to say, is the righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us by faith. And he wrote in his journal, when I discovered this, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. In other words, Luther had discovered, or better still, Luther himself had been discovered by the gospel. In the same way, that the one who writes this letter to the church at Rome had himself been set free from a background of strict religious monotheism when he had been encountered by the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when Paul, Saul, met Jesus and understood who he was and understood what it was he had done on the cross, then everything in his life changed. And his mission from that point became a mission to proclaim this same gospel, the gospel for which he tells us in the beginning of Romans chapter 1, he had been set apart. He was not only set apart for the gospel, but he tells us in verse 15 that he was eager to preach the gospel, and he was eager to do it for all who are at Rome. And then he tells us in verse 16 that he's not ashamed of the gospel. So the progression is clear. First of all, he is uncovered himself by the gospel. It is the gospel which transforms his life. He then is set apart 
to the gospel. He then is eager to preach the gospel. And in his eagerness to preach the gospel, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, this is a fairly straightforward and uh, routine statement for those of us who know our Bibles. But we do well to remind ourselves of what Paul was saying. He was saying this in relationship to Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire, which at that time stretched all the way from the British Isles to Arabia. Although it was the capital city of an empire, it was not unlike many contemporary American cities. It was not very far removed from Philadelphia or from Baltimore or from any of them up here on the eastern seaboard. It was multi-ethnic, it was prosperous, and it was immoral. Multi-ethnic, prosperous, and immoral. Wonderful architecture, but the significance of the architecture paled before all that was happening within the precincts of those great buildings. And the interest that Paul had in reaching Rome was not simply that he would go there as a tourist, taking photographs, as it were, but his interest in reaching Rome was so that he might be able to go there and tell men and women what God had done for them in the Lord Jesus Christ, to tell them that Jesus had come in order to set them free from sin, to set them free from the devil, and to set them free from death. And the heart of the gospel is in the very heart of the apostle himself. And our task in this study is to make sure that we understand the gospel that we are to proclaim and that we then are committed in a renewed way to proclaim this very gospel in the places in which God has set us down. It may seem a staggering thing for me to suggest, but I want to suggest to you that you may not actually be teaching the gospel. You may actually have begun to press upon people their need to respond to the gospel. You may have been telling them about the benefits of the gospel— you may have been warning them of the dangers of rejecting the gospel, but you have not actually been preaching the gospel. It's distinctly possible. And so let us look at four straightforward points. First of all, to consider the source of the gospel, then the substance of the gospel, then the scope of the gospel, and finally, a word or two concerning the significance of the gospel. First of all, the source of the gospel. You will notice that it is the gospel of God, or if you like, the gospel out of God. That's verse 1 of the, of the book. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, or the gospel that comes out of God. Now, this is straightforward, but it is important. The gospel is not a human invention. The gospel is divine revelation. It is not like anything else in contemporary philosophy or like anything else in comparative religion. It starts with God and it comes from God. Paul, in all of his letters, makes this point clearly. For example, in the 11th verse of Galatians 1, he writes, I want you to know, brothers that the gospel I preached is not something man made up. The gospel that I preached is not a human invention. Now, we need to be convinced of this in our preaching, because many of the people that will come into the framework of our influence and within earshot of our teaching have in the back of their minds that this story that the Christian church is telling is just another paradigm, it's just another framework, it's just another idea amongst many ideas that are out there on the buffet table, if you like, of religious possibility. And it will be a staggering thing for them to be confronted with the fact that this gospel, this good news that we proclaim, is a gospel which finds itself in God. He goes on to say, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. 
And that explains something of what was going on in these uh, months and, and years of the experience of Saul of Tarsus when God, if you like, took him away into his own training program in order to convince him and to teach him and to train him. It's a mysterious thing, but it is wonderful. So his apostolic ministry, his apostolic authority in calling people to listen to what he had to say was not on the strength of his personality, not on the basis of his giftedness, but on the basis of the fact that he was a herald, that he had not been sitting around all week trying to think of something clever to say, trying to think of something inventive to say, trying to think of some way to somehow or another connect. No, he was a herald. He was a herald. And if you have ever been and, and in a, a city, I would imagine they've got them in Philadelphia. They're more for show now than for anything else. But if you ever see those fellows with the bell and the big cloak on, and they go out, and they're town criers, and they ring the bell, hear ye, hear ye. If anybody says, well, who does he think he is ringing that big bell? What is it? Why is he doing that? Does he just want to draw attention to himself? Well, perhaps if he's a charlatan, but not if he's a town crier. And his responsibility is to cry what he has been told to cry. Either a word of warning, maybe a word of invitation, perhaps a word of encouragement. But the authority of the fellow with the bell is an authority which lies behind him. It is not an authority that is in him. And Paul recognized that entirely. It is the message that comes out from God, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The source of the gospel is in God. The source of the gospel is in the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave. The very familiarity that we have with verses like that may dull us to the wonder of it all. The hymn writers have served us always, even as we've been served in the songs that we've sung this morning. Come, let us sing of a wonderful love, tender and true, out of the heart of the Father above, reaching to me and to you. Wonderful love, out of the heart of the Father above. We need to remind ourselves, we need to ask God the Spirit to remind us of the immensity of what it is we're talking about when we're talking about the gospel. It's not a methodology. It's not a slick presentation. We're saying to men and women that the God who made them, who has fashioned them in his image, has presented in his Son the only means, the sole means, whereby they may find forgiveness and meaning and salvation. And this gospel is not a contingency plan on the part of the Father. There is nothing contingent about the gospel. If you listen to people who don't know what they're talking about talk, then you will hear them saying things that are so clearly wrong. It goes something like this. We haven't really been bothering very much with the Old Testament because God, up until Malachi, it was not really somebody that you would want to know. But mercifully, since after Malachi, after the blank sheet in the middle of our Bibles, everything has changed... And, and once we get beyond Malachi, it, 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 it really gets an awful lot better. Nothing could be further from the truth. The gospel is not something that God supplied in time to correct a defect in a system. The same God who banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden and put flaming swords across the entryway to prevent, to prevent their return is the same God who provided clothing for their nakedness so that his mercy and his judgment were executed in the very same instant. 
in the same way that in the cross, both his mercy and his judgment are made clear. And we do a great disservice to our understanding of the Bible if we are even tempted to think along those lines. Graham Goldsworthy, in his wonderful little book, um, Gospel-Centered Hermeneutics, makes a quite staggering statement when he says, God's ultimate creation plan was not Adam and Eve in Eden, but Christ in the gospel. That his ultimate creation plan was not the Garden of Eden, His ultimate creation plan was Christ in the garden, Christ going into the garden, Christ being uh, misidentified as the gardener on on the resurrection day. Why? Because he is fashioning, fashioning a community of his own. Now, what Paul says with great clarity, Peter does himself. And when you read, for example, 1 Peter chapter 1, where he says about the salvation, the three facts that are true of every Christian, chosen by God the Father, uh, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that's basically how he opens up his letter to the scattered Christians. And then he goes on to say, now, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, and by the way, even angels long to look into these things. This is an amazing drama, he says. So, if we might say so reverently and with a measure of conjecture, I think it is legitimate to say that when Isaiah went home after he'd been in his study for the day, and his wife says to him, did you have much of a day? He said, yes, I had a very good day. She said, well, what were you writing in your prophecy today? He said, well, I wrote this. I think it's really one of my best. I wrote this chapter. I wrote it down now. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or comeliness that man should desire him, no beauty that would attract them to him. He was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And Mrs. Isaiah said, I agree with you, that is very good. (laughs) Who is it about? And Isaiah said, I don't know. Now, people think that's a heresy for me to say that, but I don't think so on the basis of 1 Peter 1. The Spirit of Christ was at work in them, pointing forward, and they were trying to figure out intently what was going on. So you've got the prophets standing on their tiptoes, looking out over the vantage point of history, saying, this is all going to come together somehow, somewhere. I'm not just exactly sure. And while the prophets, you've got the picture of the prophets like this, and then you've got the pictures of the angels like up here on one of the parapets of heaven, and the angels are looking down, talking to one another. Man, this is unbelievable. I was down there in Bethlehem. I, didn't, I never knew it was going to go to like this. I, were you the Bethlehem guy? I was a Bethlehem guy, Yeah. <laughs> You mean with the shepherds and everything? Glory to God. Yeah. Wow. Wow. But what do you think of this? I don't know. It's unbelievable, isn't it? I think this must be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's immense. It's immense. We have a story to tell to the nations. A gospel that comes out from God. Paul is not ashamed. He's not ashamed. Sometimes we are ashamed of our sermons because they're no good. We're ashamed of how feeble has been our use of time and energy and preparation. That's a justifiable shame. 
But there's no reason to be ashamed of the gospel. It's not our gospel. We're just heralds, not inventors, just heralds. And don't let anybody tell you that your job is a very difficult job because what you're supposed to do is to go back to where you've come from and make the Bible relevant. I, I, what, a, what a horrible thought that I'd have to spend. I'd get up on a Monday morning and try and make the Bible relevant. I don't have to make the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant. My job, our job, is to let people see just how relevant the Bible is. That's all. It's, it's supremely relevant because of its source. You see, everyone comes with maker's instructions. God made them. He made you, we can say to people. He loves. He gave. That's the source. Secondly, let's say something concerning the substance. What is the substance of the gospel? Uh, we just had a, a good friend from... Um, Australia with us at a pastor's conference in, in Cleveland uh, about a week or 10 days ago now. And in one of his little books called Promoting the Gospel, he makes this statement, this sort of uh, definition of the gospel. You won't be able to get it down, but I'll read it to you anyway. I think you'll find it helpful. He says, the gospel is the announcement that God has revealed and opened up his kingdom to sinners, that he has revealed and opened up his kingdom to sinners through the birth teaching, miracles, death, and resurrection of the Messiah Jesus, who will one day return to overthrow evil and to consummate the kingdom for eternity. In other words, the gospel is the totality of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I say to you, it's possible that we're not actually telling people the gospel. I don't say that as a word of criticism or as a judgment. I say it first to myself that it is very possible for my very familiarity with terminology and the way in which we close our talks and everything else to, to, to convince ourselves that we're actually telling people the substance of the gospel. But in many cases, we may not be. That's why it's always good to have a refresher course, to make sure that we know what it is we're talking about when we speak in these terms. So that it is by means of the gospel that men and women who by nature are alienated from God, are reconciled to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? So that we do not present Jesus to people as an example, although he is an example, nor do we pre present him to people as a martyr, because he wouldn't fit that dis designation. No, we present him to people as a substitute. So that at the heart of the gospel is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. And it's not sufficient for us to say, but we don't like those big terminology, we don't like that terminology or whatever it is. We're trying to contextualize ourselves. Listen, if you do not, if your attempts, if our attempts at contextualization are not controlled, strictly controlled by the Bible, we'll contextualize the Bible right into oblivion. Therefore, we have to make sure that we take the foundations of gospel truth and break it down for people in a way that is understandable. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that the substance of the gospel is not good advice about what we need to do in order to be saved. It is the good news of what God has done in Jesus to save us. And there's all the difference in the world. If we're not careful, our people will think that it is the former rather than the latter that we're giving them good advice about what they ought to do if they want to be saved. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the news that another has come and lived the perfect life that we are called to live but can't, and he has died the death that we deserve to die but could never die because of our sin. It is the good news that while we are unac unacceptable to God, unfit for heaven, unable to rectify our circumstances, that another has come and taken our place so that we might be accepted in him. That is the story of the gospel. That is the substance of it. Turn, for example, to 2 Corinthians just for a moment, and, and let's just anchor this in our thinking from another Pauline passage. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, "...since then we know what it is to fear the Lord." 
we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Okay? Verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. On account of this, he says, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. We once regarded Christ in that way. We don't do so any longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And so he's able to say, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, when you unpack that, you realize that Paul is identifying the fact that men and women alienated from God are marked by a number of things. One, they take pride in what is seen. Two, they live for themselves. Three, they regard Christ from a worldly point of view. So we know that about the people to whom we speak, who are not in Christ, who are alienated from God. They view things entirely differently. They just see Jesus as a great teacher. They just see Jesus as as somebody who was a, a moral man or an outstanding character. They view life as if what they have, what they possess, where they go, where they live, is the significant things in life. And from a human perspective, they view themselves as well. And the challenge of preaching the gospel is to preach the gospel to people and say to them, you're thinking all wrong. The Bible says, listen, you are alienated from God, which is bad news, but that gives me the opportunity to tell you the good news, that God has provided reconciliation, that you are separated from God on two two counts. One, You are separated from God on the basis of your personal rebellion. And two, you're separated from God on the strength of his wrath against sin. God is opposed to sin. You are a sinner. You disobey God's law. You're alienated from him. Paul says elsewhere, you're without God and you're without hope in the world. People say, "I I can't believe this fellow has brought me in here to tell me this stuff. What does he think he's doing? Is there a good part to this? Well, yes, but the good part is only on the basis of the bad part. What what story of the mercy of God until you understand the wrath of God? Rob Bell, who's kind of uh, increasingly famous now, Keith Getty told me that Rob Bell, when In Christ Alone came out, had invited Keith and Kristen to sing in the church there but he wanted them to know that they had already changed some of the words in their hymns. So they had removed the phrase, the wrath of God is satisfied. Because we don't don't like to sing that stuff here. We might believe it, we just don't like to sing it. Now, you probably don't like to sing it because you don't believe it. But the fact of the matter is that in the death of Christ, the wrath of God is satisfied. That's the significance of verse 21. You can stay up all night thinking about God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of this, verse 18, all of this is from God. Notice again, who reconciled us. Now, the interesting thing is, and the key to it, and and when I got this pointed out to me, it really helped me and it might help you as well. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. It doesn't say not counting men's sins full stop. But that's the way it's so often preached. I've got good news for you. God's not counting sins. Where'd you get that from? God is counting sins. Oh, absolutely he is. It's appointed unto man once to die and after this comes judgment. He is counting sins. 
So what then is the good news if he's counting my sins? Well, the good news is that he's not counting them against you. Well, who is he counting them against? He's counting them against his dearly beloved son who died in your place. Oh, now we've got a story. Now we've got a whole different story. But you see, when you try and when we try and get immediately to, you know, look at Jesus here. Did you see Jesus? Did you see? Let's be fair to many of our friends and our listeners. They can't, for the life of themselves, understand what it is we're getting so passionate about. What do you mean? I don't know. What, I mean, I can see you're exercised about it, but it doesn't make sense to me. And the reason it often doesn't make sense is because we haven't explained it to them. It's really like me saying that, um, t- telling my wife that I jumped, I, honey, I'm, I'm going to jump into the Chesapeake Bay and drown myself to show you how much I love you. She'd say, well, you lost your mind, did you? How would that show me that you love me? Well, it wouldn't really. But if she was out on our little dinghy out here and got in difficulty and I dived into the Chesapeake Bay and in saving her lost my life, then people might have said, my, how much he must have loved his wife to lose his life in order that she might gain her life. See, some of our presentations of the gospel are the former. Jesus is up there to show you this. People are going, okay, well, I get that, but somehow or another there's a disconnect. And And the disconnect is that we haven't done the first part. And part of the reason we don't do the first part is because we don't like the first part. But without the first part, the second part doesn't make sense. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, because he was counting the sins against him. And that's the substance of the gospel. That's why Luther on one occasion said, uh, ultimately the gospel is all outside of us. It's outside of us. I'll come back to this before I finish. But it is outside of us in the sense that it is my sins to Christ's account and Christ's righteousness to my account. A divine transaction, a great exchange. In fact, the whole thing is the story of exchanges, isn't it? Romans 1, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. God gave them up. But in his mercy, he provided salvation and a solution. And in his kindness he did so. And here is the great exchange. I I think you have it masterfully and mysteriously in the encounter that takes place in in the scenario involving Jesus in the crucifixion with the two thieves on either side of him. And when you put together the gospel records, it's amazing how much banter and conversation there was going on there. A lot of shouting, a lot of hullabaloo, a lot of different things going on. And then that amazing, strange moment, that, that, uh, that clarifying moment for one of the fellows up there. You know, it makes you think of a hymn writer when he says, I know not how the Spirit moves, convicting men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him, you know? The mystery of it. That all of a sudden, how could it be that suddenly out of nowhere, this guy says to the other fellow, Hey, I think you better cut that stuff out. Because I've been hanging up here thinking about it. I've had time to think about it. And this, and his friend says, well, well what are you getting? I said, well, that's what I'm getting. I'm getting this. We are up here getting what we deserve. But this guy hasn't done anything wrong. Oh, now the door is swinging open, isn't it? Now it's just beginning to open up. And then he turns around and he says, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? What has happened to the guy? 
The Spirit of God has opened the eyes of his understanding. And although he's never going to be at a pastor's conference, he's never going to be at a Bible study, he's never going to read through the New Testament in the space of a year, he's never going to do any of that. On the basis of an alien righteousness, he is included in the purposes of God. Because if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. The only chance this guy had of righteousness is the only chance any of us have of righteousness, because he knew that I don't have a stitch of righteousness in order to bring myself in through the gates of heaven. If, if, if you need to be perfect to get into heaven, I'm busted, unless, unless I could go in on the strength of this man here. Cecil Francis Alexander was a lady in Ireland. She lived her life in an earlier century. She took it upon herself to write hymns for children that would explain the gospel in a way that children could understand. So, for example, she wrote the wonderful Christmas carol that Americans seldom ever sing, Once in royal David's city stood a lowly cattle shed where a mother laid her baby in a manger for his bed. Jesus was, uh, Mary was that mother mild, and Jesus was his little child. He came down from, to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. And so she went on. She wrote, all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all, in order to teach the doctrine of creation. She wrote, Once in Royal David City, in order to teach the doctrine of the Incarnation. And she wrote, There is a green hill far away, in order to teach the doctrine of the Atonement. Remember the verse, There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. That was written by a lady in Ireland in order that children in her day might understand what was happening in the cross. And my dear brothers, this is the very substance and heart of the gospel that we are to proclaim. It is here that, that people's lives are converted. And I know that the, you can get a big crowd for your, for your deal in all kinds of ways. The, the preaching that, that some of us are tempted to do is what I call grocery checkout preaching. It's the same thing. If you, I never have occasion to read any of those magazines. I just see them. You don't need to read them because it's the same, as far as I can tell, they recycle the same thing all the time. Is sex, uh, money, and uh, yeah, whatever the third one would be, maybe maybe uh, intelligence or social, you know, distinctives. You know, and here's big fat Mary, and now she's little skinny Mary. You know, here's here's uh, you know here here's big George. He was an idiot, and now he's become really clever. Here's you know here's here's Mr. Jenkins. He wasn't having any fun in his marriage, and now he's a raging maniac. And look at, look at how it's, it's all done. And so the pragmatists among us, they go, well, this is easy. That's what people want. So we'll give up preaching the gospel, because what we're now going to do is we're going to do talks like seven ways to fix your marriage. It's not wrong to have seven ways to fix your marriage. Three ideas for raising teenage kids that don't go nuts and jump off buildings. Five ways to handle your finances. Go ahead and do it. But don't kid yourself you're preaching the gospel. Do not kid yourself. And don't be so smart as to think that you can tag a little minute and a half thing on the end on the strength of no biblical exposition, on the basis of nothing that a person could understand, and then tell them that you're making an appeal for them. An appeal on the basis of what? It's not fair to people. We must give them the information that they need in order to make their response. Because all of those other things are available everywhere, but they will not cause them to cast themselves upon Christ as a Savior until they're confronted with the reality of their sin. The thief saw it. We're up here getting what we deserve. We're guilty. He's up here 
and uh, getting something he doesn't deserve, somehow or another he must be up here for us. You're right. He was. Every so often you come across just a little paragraph that nails it for you, and I've got the paragraph for you. I'm going to give it to you. No extra charge. And, uh, and, he, and here it is. This is, this, is how, this is how John Stott put this whole issue of the righteousness of God in terms of the substance of the gospel. First of all, this righteousness of God is the status that God requires. There are four verbs. The first verb is require. It is the status that God requires if a man or a woman is ever to stand before him. What is the status that God requires? Absolute perfection. The righteousness is the status that God requires if we're ever going to stand before him. Secondly, it is that which God achieves, it's the second verb, which he achieves in the atoning sacrifice of his Son. What we can never produce by ourselves, he has provided for us in the death of Jesus. He pardons those who believe in Jesus, even though we've sinned and deserve only condemnation. Otherwise, no one could ever go to heaven. And in the death of Jesus, he displays and satisfies his perfect justice in dealing with sin, which if he didn't do, he could never be true to himself. The righteousness which he requires, the righteousness which he achieves, thirdly, the righteousness which he reveals in the gospel. He makes this known in the gospel, the good news. That's why we want to be about the gospel. That's why we want to be gospel men. And fourthly, it is the good news that he bestows on all who trust in Jesus. Now, I've found that really helpful to keep those verbs in my mind. When I get out there somewhere and I'm in conversation with somebody and they say, well, I'm not really sure about this. I know Jesus died. And how does that work? What are the implications for me? Say, well, here's the deal. It's a righteousness that he requires. Are you righteous enough to stand before a holy God? No, I don't think so. Well, that's our major, this is the first major problem because his standard is absolute perfection. Any takers? Okay, right. So now you know you've got a problem. I guess. I mean, you say so. No, I don't say so. Just read this. That's what it says. You've got a problem. That's what he requires. But here's the good news. This is what he achieves. This is the reason for the death of Jesus. This is what he reveals when the gospel is made clear. And this is what he bestows as a free gift of grace on those who believe in him. It's a story from the beginning all to the end, isn't it? Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, the reason I can rehearse this with you is because you know this. You believe this. The ministries out of which you come and to which you return are gospel ministries. You're famous as Calvary Chapel guys for a commitment to conveying the love of God to lost people in a way that might see them turning to Jesus in repentance and in faith. So don't misinterpret my tone or anything about me as if somehow or another I, I felt that I was here in order to tell you something that you didn't know or to guide you in a direction about which you are not interested or concerned. Thirdly, and I'm going to move quickly now because it's getting close to the noontime hour. Thirdly, what then is the scope of this gospel? What is the scope of the gospel? Well, look at how it reads. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of a very small group of people that, uh, that you don't know anything about. Now, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Don't you just love that? It's the salvation for everyone who believes. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, But now our righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There we have it. It comes from God the Father in Christ to all. 
from God is the source, in Christ is the substance, to all is the scope. There's no distinction, he says. There's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. There is no distinction between those who are fat or thin, brainy or dumb. I am, he says, bound over both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks. I'm committed to both the wise people and the foolish people. I have an obligation to tell the clever ones they're not as clever as they think, and to tell the silly ones they're not as daft as they might be. I'm able to tell the Jewish ones that they don't have to do all that rigmarole, and I'm able to tell the miserable Gentile pagans that they need to have a careful look at who Jesus is. You see, if you think about it, there are only really two groups of people in all of our congregations who resist the gospel. They they finally fit into one of two camps, at least where I preach. Uh, There are those who have made such a royal mess of their lives that they feel themselves to be so bad that there is no hope of salvation. And there are others who believe themselves to be so good that there's no need for salvation. And it is only the gospel that addresses both, isn't it? Because the, the gospel deals with the pride of the person who says, well, I don't really need to be saved. And the gospel is the only thing that can say to the guy, I know you're in a hell of a mess. I know you've, you, you're, you're up the creek. I, I, know, I know this. But I want to tell you, God, who created you from all of eternity, went to the extent of sending his only son so that you might discover his mercy and his grace. Oh, but I don't know. Is he, is he sure it's for me? I'm dead certain it's for you. How come? How can you say? Because it's for all who believe. Are you going to believe? Oh, I don't know. What do I need to believe? Well, I think you've done the first part. You're... You're a sinner, right? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Yes, yes. That's good. I had someone come in my office three weeks ago, a lady that I've known from Starbucks. Her son came to church. She said she was an atheist. I used to banter with her in the mornings. Eighteen months after the last banter, she comes walking in the door. I can't go into all the details, but she was very, always very dismissive of anything. And she came in, and she sat opposite me. And after a while, she's telling her story and everything else. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of a sentence, she just stopped. And she looked up at me, and she said, Alistair, the fact is, I am just lost. And then she said, I am like a little lost sheep. I said, this is good. There's a whole section in the Bible written for you. Let me read it to you. (laughs) But you see, what was it brought the prodigal back up the road? It wasn't simply the awareness of his sin. He could have faced up to all of his sin and just gone and got another job, couldn't he? What brought him back up the road was not simply the awareness of the fact that he'd sinned, but it was the prospect of his father's mercy. The prospect of his father's mercy brought him back up the road. So we can say to people, you made a mess? Sure, you made a mess. There's no distinction. The scope is clear. Can I quote Calvin here without it getting back to... uh, um, (laughs) Maybe my final visit, but anyway, here... uh, And this is not to slam the old boy, but it's... Calvin, in the third book of the Institutes, which I'm sure you all have lying by your bed, <laughs> he, opens the, he opens the third book of the Institutes essentially by saying this. This is a summary. He says he's, he's gone through this immense you know, theological treatise. And then he says, All that Christ has done for us is of no value to us so long as we remain outside of Christ. All that Christ has done for us is of no value to us so long that we remain outside of Christ. All that he has achieved by his death and his resurrection, by his sinless life, by his keeping of the law, by his act of righteousness, it is of no value to us. Therefore, it is the responsibility of those of us who are in Christ to make much of Christ so that those who are out of Christ may be placed by his mercy in Christ. And when we read the history of the church, what do we discover? That those who have been the most effective in evangelism— 
have been men and women who have been consumed by and compelled by the love of God, who have been absolutely convinced that God loves saving people. They're absolutely assured of the fact that He has died in the place of sinners. As Rabbi Duncan used to put it, the free church professor in, uh, in Edinburgh years ago, someone had said to him, well, how do you know that Christ died for you? He put it like this. He said, I read in the Bible that Christ died for sinners. Rabbi Duncan is a sinner, therefore Christ died for me. And when we get down to the very heart of it all, we see that in Jesus, the compelling impact of Jesus is that he sees people as sheep without a shepherd. He's not like his disciples, mercifully. What are they like? All the way through the Gospels, they're a walking disaster zone. One step forward, two steps back. Well, it's been a really nice miracle, Jesus, but let's, you know, let's don't be doing that anymore. It's, this is, we're done with that. We've got to get moving on. Keep the kids back, would you please? We've, we've got to, we've got to, no, it's, no, no, no. He's a very famous man now, and we've got to, now, you just be quiet. We're just moving on. We're moving on. Jesus, Jesus, I mean, I know you want to put everybody down in groups and sit in the grass and everything, but we got to get out of here. I mean, there's, this is, people are tired. You've been talking a long time. Get, let's send them home. Jesus, get rid of them. Jesus said, no, have them sit down. Oh, man. We'll, we'll get them something to eat. We couldn't get them something to eat. There's nowhere to get anything to eat. We checked. There's only one kid. He's got five loaves, two fish. What are you going to do with that? Watch me. <laughs> it's what you're going to do with that. We're going to do it. You are going to do it. Just sit them down in groups of 50. We'll take care of it from there. Can you imagine? I just wish I could have seen. I see, Philip, you know, he's like, he's got his little thing, you know, and Peter, and they're like, hey. I don't know. I don't know about this one. <laughs> I mean, uh, walking on the water was nothing compared to this. This is unbelievable. <laughs> but, you know, let's be honest. If we're not careful, it can happen to us. We, become, we can become cold, skeptical, cynical, isolated. Yeah, I know you got a problem and stuff, but I got to get home for my lunch, you know. I I we'll talk about it maybe some other time. No, I say to you again that the love that the love of God, the love of God is such that if we can rest confidently in that, then our passion for mission will never be quenched. Yeah, there are some people who who've got themselves really tied up in their underwear, and they're frightened that if they make the gospel too clear and too accessible, that some of the wrong people are going to actually start believing it, you know? And, um, you know, what a tyranny, you know? No, I can't, I, can't, I can't say, why don't you all come now? Because we might, some of the non-elect might start coming up here, and I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Oh, believe me, believe me. There are, there are. I'm meeting them everywhere I go now. There are young guys who've made, you know, a great new discovery of theology, and their tongues are tied. That was their tongues are tied, because they don't. They, 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 they've lost confidence in the free offer of the gospel. They've lost confidence in being able to say to people, God commands you to repent and to believe. They've lost confidence in saying that the Father calls for you. They've lost confidence in saying that Jesus issues an unbelievable invitation to those who are weary and heavy laden. They've lost confidence in saying, whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. And you understand where I come from in saying this to you, I think, some of you at least. I'm not talking here about some great divide between clashing views of theology. I'm saying all that I'm saying on the strength of the fact of God's gracious purpose from all of eternity to put together a people that are his very own. And it is on the strength of that that we speak concerning the extent of the gospel. I've, I've come to my final point going through it in three minutes. Ian Murray, in a wonderful uh, little uh, booklet um, 
called uh, uh, you know you know Augustine said that the, the, the cross that the cross is uh, God preaching the gospel to the world and the booklet is uh, maybe it's the preaching of the cross maybe it's the love of God I don't know anyway here's the here's the only important quote you don't need to get it he says <laughs> The preaching of Christ crucified to the unconverted, all right? The preaching of Christ crucified to the unconverted requires the presentation of his person, the cost of his substitution for sinners, and the immensity of the divine love for sinners. It does not require explanation on the extent of the atonement. It is not our responsibility to explain the unexplainable. All right? Finally, just a word concerning the significance of the gospel. If its uh, source is in God and its substance is in what Christ has achieved and its scope is as vast and as wide as the children's song reminds us, remember, wide, wide is the ocean and high is the heavens above and deep, deep as the deepest sea is my Savior's love, and I, though so unworthy, that's how we had to do it at Sunday school, though so unworthy, still am a child of his care, for his word teaches me that his love reaches me everywhere. If we're convinced of that, then that provides the foundation and the significance for every other part of it. There is no church without the gospel. No one is added to the church without the gospel. Uh, The unmistakable purpose of God to put together a people that are his very own is on account of the gospel. It is a gospel which is regarded as complete foolishness to those who are perishing, to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. It is in the gospel that we have our unity with one another. We may disagree on peripheral things about the nature of all manner of things, but we're gospel men. We're committed to the gospel. The the very privileges that I enjoy, I hope, do not fall to me because I'm able to be chameleon-like in moving from one group to another, but I hope it is because I'm trying never to deviate from my absolute commitment to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that all who love the gospel and are committed to the gospel are those with whom I, I, uh, you know, I join my hands and unite my heart and, and, and and rejoice in because it is all in the gospel. It's a gospel that is, um, you know, contrary to the philosophical framework of our day, and it is a gospel that uh, is challenged uh, consistently. And I just want to encourage you to get off your back foot in relationship to human wisdom, um, and and also not to rely on apologetics. Um, You say, well, I thought apologetics. What about Ravi Zacharias? What about Ravi Zacharias? He's big brain and a very nice man and does a terrific job for all of us. But I'm going to tell you something right now. No one ever was converted by apologetics. Amen. No one was ever converted by apologetics. You can't argue anybody into heaven. I'll tell you why. Because our minds have been altered by sin. There's no intellectual road to God because sin has corrupted our minds. So we actually think wrongly about stuff. Even when we're trying to think right, we think wrong. We are so blind that we don't know how blind we are until the Spirit of God shows us our blindness. Then once He's shown us the blindness, then we can begin to figure out what about this uh, that, I, you know, that, that, that I'm going to be made, be made to see. So here's the wonderful thing. I'm not, that's not an argument against apologetics. I read all that stuff and I try and do it as well in Starbucks as you do too. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what it is, I mean, it's, I try and find a verse for this, but it's uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 4. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We had a boy in from England reminding us of this just a week ago. I absolutely loved it. He kept saying it again and again. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus. And then verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. And this is what he kept saying to us as a congregation. We preach the gospel, God opens blind eyes. We preach the gospel, God opens blind eyes. And and I think my congregation actually believe this now. We preach the gospel, God opens blind eyes. In other words, we don't argue anybody into the kingdom. We preach the gospel, God opens blind eyes. 
and whatever tools you may choose to use. But get off your back foot. Don't let the people jam you in a corner at Starbucks. They don't know what they're talking about. They're full of all that stuff, all those stickers on the back of their cars, all the yin, the yang, the yong, the young, whatever it is. Just the most ridiculous. The coexist. What a bunch of junk. It's unbelievably stupid from start to finish. It is expressive of a world that has turned its back on God. And that God says if you do that, there are implications. Immorality, homosexuality in its expressed form, and so on. There are implications to all of that. But I haven't written you off, and that's why Jesus is here. That's the message that we get across. It'd be a dreadful tyranny to think that somehow or another we had to argue them there. And there's people that to whom we speak are not going to get there by going up on a mountain and, uh, and thinking about it. If they go up on a mountain, they'll find enough to hold them accountable. They won't find, them enough, find enough to convert them. And that's because the only way that a man or woman is converted, reconciled to God, is through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the final thing I want to say to you. It's vital that we preach the gospel to ourselves. It's vital that we preach the gospel to ourselves. Because if we don't preach the gospel to ourselves, we won't preach it to our people. And if we don't preach it to our people, then they will be tempted to fall into all kinds of traps. The trap of of feeling that somehow or another they're justified on the basis of something done in them. And you've got to make sure that they know that they're not justified on the basis of something done in them. They're justified on the basis of something done for them. As a result of them trusting in what has been done for them, the Spirit of God now works in them. But they're not justified on the basis of what's done in them. Justified on the strength of an alien righteousness in Christ alone. Now, how does that work itself out? If you ask somebody, why is it you believe that God will welcome you into heaven? And they reply in the first person, they've immediately gone wrong. Why do you believe that God will accept you into heaven? Well, because I. Well, because I. Because I did this, because I accepted that, because I trusted this, because I was filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, I see. So you're actually trusting in something uh, that's happened inside of you, are you? No, you see, the answer that our people need to give is in the third person, not the first person. How do you know that God will, will accept you into heaven? Because he. Not because I. Because he. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he wash all my sins away. Because what was the thief going to say before the gate of heaven? What are you doing up here, son? Why why should we let you in here? The only answer he could give is the only answer that any of us can give. And that is, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Not, that's it. Well, maybe I'll come back another time and finish this talk. But for now, I think, that's, I think, I think we're done. We're more than done. Um, uh, pray with me, and I'm going to pray a prayer of, of Murray McShane, who died when he was, what, 29? And this, this is McShane's prayer. I'm sure he won't mind us stealing it from him. Make it our own. Gracious God, though I am chosen by you, and honored by a high and holy calling, let me never forget that I am but a man of dust and ashes, a man with all the natural faults and passions that plague the race of man. I pray you, therefore, my Lord and my Redeemer, save me from myself and from all the injuries I may do myself while endeavoring to bless others. Fill me with your power by the Holy Spirit, and I will go in your strength and tell of your righteousness. I will spread abroad the message of redeeming love while my earthly life shall last. For your son's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Alistair Begg. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Alistair's teaching ministry by visiting truthforlife.org.